Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Brief, a short, sharp snapshot of the region's policy landscape. I'm Edwina Landale and I'm a little bit sick this week so I apologise if the interview is a little husky. Last week, the most powerful typhoon to hit Japan in 25 years left a path of destruction across the country. Typhoon Jebi packed winds of up to 216 kilometres per hour strong enough to blow a 2,600-tonne tanker into an airport bridge. It has reportedly left 11 dead and over 600 people injured, and it comes at the end of a summer of natural disasters in Japan, including floods, earthquakes, landslides, and a record-breaking heatwave. Across the Asia-Pacific region, infrastructure is increasingly exposed to the impacts of disasters, We're known as the most disaster-prone region in the world, and weather patterns are becoming more extreme as a result of climate change. As natural disasters become more frequent and more intense, our cities are growing bigger and bigger, and the greatest impacts are often felt in the countries with the least capacity to prepare and respond. How can we design policy to prepare for events which are destructive, unpredictable, and don't respect national borders? And how can we design cities for millions of people that can be resilient to disasters in the era of climate change? To help answer some of these questions, we have Professor David Sanderson. David has over 25 years of experience working in development and emergencies and has carried out a number of assignments for NGOs and donors across the world. He is the inaugural Judith Nielsen Chair in Architecture at UNSW and is an expert in designing for disaster. Thank you for joining us today, David. Well, thanks, Edwina, and great to be here. So we hear this thrown around quite a bit, that the Asia-Pacific region is the most disaster-prone in the world. But what does that actually mean for the people who are living here? Mm, Great question. And of course, the first thing to observe that Asia-Pacific is an enormous area and people do club that together. What often happens is the Pacific falls off the edge of that because Asia Asia is so big. It's encountering some of the largest urban growth. You mentioned that. Cities around the world are growing by something like 1.4 million people a week. It's almost unbelievable. 200,000 people a day, made up mostly of people being born in cities and, of course, people migrating also. And so we're seeing shifts of people. And in fact, climate change refugees, as they're known, people shifting as a result of disasters increasingly caused by climate change is huge and, and is enormous. So we are in a part of the world where we do have a lot of disasters. Um, it's, it's interesting that we do call them natural disasters, but of course they're not natural. They're, they're caused by, well, people being in the wrong place at the wrong time, if you like, through misfortune, but more often than not uh, being vulnerable, being in poorly built buildings or living on coastal edges on poor quality land. And so an awful lot of disasters around the world we are, we are part of. And you started off with the tragic recent events in Japan. And Japan is, is extremely disaster-prone, as, as you highlighted in the introduction. What is remarkable is that Japan is incredibly prepared. 
And while disasters are terrible things and, and any loss of life is obviously very bad, the fact that it's not in the hundreds of thousands every single time you hear such a bad disaster as that is a testimony to the preparedness, we call it, of Japan. So if you're in Japan and, and there's a, a tremor in the ground, as there often is, there's every chance your mobile phone goes off telling you immediately what the warning is. If there's a tsunami, which is an earthquake in the sea, happens, you immediately are told about that on mobiles. Uh, buildings are built, high-story buildings are built with these huge pendulums in the basement that enable them to sway. Japan's able to do that because it's, it's learned through bitter experience. It's a very wealthy country. It organizes uh, its levels of governance, if you like, if management is strong. When you see the opposite of terrible disasters, it's where countries are poor. And there's no, it's no coincidence that poorer countries have the worst disasters because the buildings are built less worse, less better, I should say, because the level of preparedness were well, maybe literally non-existent. Take the case of Haiti eight years ago now, of course, poorest country in the Western world. So many people died because the buildings fell down because of poverty, corruption. There's a study that took place some years ago after that uh, that looked at where disasters were happening, so-called natural, of course they're not, and corrupt countries, and well, more corrupt, I should say, all countries have levels of corruption, more corrupt. 83% of big disasters happened in countries that were more corrupt. Extraordinary thought that. So the point of that bit is that there's a lot we can do to reduce the vulnerability of disasters because it's how people and how we choose to manage ourselves. And you mentioned this huge growth of population and there is this trend towards urbanization. So development needs to be conscious of the risk of disaster. Uh, are we seeing development that is considering these risks or are we seeing irresponsible development in many of these countries that are growing at very rapid rates? Unsurprisingly, all of that. There are many remarkable things that are happening which reduce or even prevent disasters. Bangladesh has led the way in its cyclone early warning systems. In the 1970s, a cyclone that may have killed 400,000 people will now only kill, well, I say only, but will kill maybe 100, 150. Uh, the, the, the difference is extraordinary. The fact of all the non-disasters that have happened is a testimony on the planet to its successes. That said, we are facing extraordinary challenges. And only today, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Guterres, said that the world is facing a direct existential threat about the risk of climate change and has said, if we don't sort this by 2020, we've had it, is the summary of a long story. And what he's pointed out is that, we, to quote him, what we still lack is leadership and the ambition to do what is needed. It comes down to leadership. The Paris Agreement 2015 was modest, and yet so many governments are not taking action. And of course, the most stark of those is the United States withdrawal from the Paris Declaration, which is a travesty. Not only has the US recently withdrawn from the Paris Agreement, but Australia, with the recent change of government, has withdrawn from some of the emissions commitments of the NEG. And the new Australian Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, recently made a keynote speech regarding Australia's relations to Pacific nations. And there were some very significant emissions. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Only last week, the Boe Declaration, uh, which was hosted by Nauru, um, of the Pacific Island Forum, the, the national leaders there came out with a declaration that climate change, and I'm quoting, remains the single greatest threat to the livelihood, that means jobs, security and well-being of the peoples of the Pacific. That's an extraordinary statement. Now, that statement was endorsed by uh, the leadership of New Zealand and Australia. However, Australia did decline uh, to call for countries to, quote, urgently accelerate reductions in carbon emissions. And they also declined to support a call for the U.S. to stay in the Paris Declaration. 
it's it's not okay. Um, all countries need to step up to the plate. Now, I'm sitting with you now at ANU in Canberra because the State of the Pacific Conference is taking place. Some 400 people from the region have come together. Some of the leading thinkers, uh, some very senior politicians are here. And uh, as you say, uh, Maurice Payne, the foreign minister, is here in the first few days of her job. And the meeting last week in Nauru was all about climate change. There's, there's only one thing that people were talking about. And yet, our, our foreign minister had the opportunity to address that at this very important meeting and didn't. And the, what was stark and obvious in, in, in her introduction was the omission of the words climate change. And I don't actually understand how a country that's so strong in the region and so successful at the longest run of interrupted growth ever in modern history uh, and is a democracy is able to not grasp this nettle and lead from the front and actually make a difference, especially in a region with such stark contrast. I, where I live in New South Wales, is, is a terrible drought, I mean, throughout the rest of Australia. So there's genuine hardship here. There is extreme hardship in an awful lot of islands of our neighbours. And Australia needs to do more. It already does some stuff, but it's not enough. And this was a great opportunity that I think many in that room felt was missed. So what does that say about Australia? This response doesn't sound promising for where we're sitting on climate change. Way more needs to be done. And the fear is that may now not be happening. Choose your different metric. And I, I know this can be a game of trading different statistics. But if you look at one, the Climate Change Performance Index, uh, that measures uh, 60 countries in terms of gas emissions, energy, clean energy, climate policy. It's, it's a holistic way of measuring it. And where 60 is the worst and uh, the best is number one, Australia is 57th uh, ahead of Iran, Saudi Arabia and South Korea. 56th is uh, North America. And China is 41st. I mean, natural, natural disasters have been occurring since the Earth came into being. So how is climate change specifically affecting or making worse disaster risk? Uh, it is, is the summary. There have been some denies and skeptics, but they're wrong. The overwhelming evidence is it causes sea level rises, uh, which, of course, threat low-lying islands and coastal areas, so especially in the Pacific region, stronger cyclones. Uh, the sea, uh, changing acidity in the sea and the warming of the sea temperature were um, the, the Carolinas in, 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 the, in the southern edge of the United States is bracing itself for a, a terrible storm that, heaven forbid, will make landfall. It may be the biggest since Hurricane Hugo that took place in 1989 and the Carolinas are being evacuated. It's extremely serious. Um, typhoon, uh, hurricanes like that, and we call them cyclones here, gather speed when the water warms up. The water is warming up due to climate change. So we are facing we are facing these things. And Gutierrez this morning summarizes the existential nature of this. And so we need to do more. Climate change and the impacts on drought, uh, depending on the research you look at, um, climate change is not helping drought and is almost certainly contributing to it. Uh, in southern Australia, there's evidence of that and elsewhere. So, so we are living in a time of change where it's not, it's not the end game. We have a chance to change it. But... We need to lead from the front and change in Australia and other countries. And all of us, it's, this, is a, this, is, this is a team effort, have to act on it. But we do need strong, clear leadership to make that difference. And you yourself work in design for disaster and I'm quoting here, architecture for social agency. So what does that actually involve and what does it focus on? The big focus there is on social agency. So it's, a, it's an initiative from the university I happen to work at, along with a, a grand challenge we're calling it in rapid urbanization. Uh, social agency is around engaging with people for fairer cities. So around the world, there are just shy of a billion people living in slums and squatter settlements and low-income settlements. Some in... 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Extraordinarily awful conditions. Uh, if you inhabit that is correct, it may, it may double in the next 15 years. So those people are major stakeholders in cities and are so often not heard. In the Pacific region, we, we, we may call them city villages. Uh, the rates of urbanization in Pacific islands, it sounds counterintuitive, but they're really high. Uh, and an awful lot of very low-income settlements, people living with no water, your piped water, I mean. Uh, so people buy water, it's very expensive. No sanitation, so you might openly defecate or, or, or do whatever. Uh, where when it rains, your, 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 your houses flood. Where there's a disaster, you're, you're swept away. So this is a large number of people with city growth and social agency is around embracing all the factors that add to that. So we might talk about smart cities or better design buildings or building regulations. However, at the end of the day, it's actually about engaging those living in poverty uh, to have fairer cities. That's, that's the major challenge. Uh, around the world. So the idea is to make cities better for people to live in and therefore create communities that are more resilient to these kinds of disasters. That's exactly it. And you mentioned the R word, the resilience word, <laughs> uh, which is a real important word right now. There's um, the, the sustainable development goals where the world is united to say, how are we going to fix the world from now to 2030? Two of those 17 goals deal with resilience and they tie themselves to infrastructure and cities. So this resilience word is about being stronger. It's about if a disaster happens, recovering in a way that you're better than where you were before. It's about getting ready for the next one because many disasters are cyclical and can be prevented. The hazards are often cyclical, I should say. So resilience is about individuals being stronger. The joy of the word resilience is it's a good enough understanding. I think we all get it. We don't need to spend weeks defining it, although many people do <laughs> their own personal entertainment. Um, so it's a very important word, and it's around a galvanizing word. At the conference here in the state of the Pacific, that word was referred to a lot. And there are, there are many initiatives. Uh, in this region, there's a whole initiative relating to uh, resilience, which is a Pacific resilience plan, which uh, the Pacific Islands states have come together to to work at and do together. Uh, and that's, that is around building partnerships, enacting work together, and actually making a difference, a measurable difference. So there are things that can, there are things that can happen to uh, reduce the impacts of climate change, but we have to move fast. But building resilience is, is surely one of those that we can do. I find this really interesting because you're talking about designing cities that make the people who live in them more resilient to disaster. And in my limited, admittedly, knowledge of disaster risk and reduction, it's a, a national policy or emergency mechanism. So where does the community response play into all of this? It's, it's a great question. And you, you'd be right in thinking that. And of course, there's a role for that of national frameworks and policies, and that's essential. But to, to, to use the well-worn phrase, after the earthquake, it's your neighbors who pull you out of the rubble. The first responders, to, to give that a slightly technical name, are people people like you and I, who, heaven forbid, are in floods or cyclones or earthquakes or, 
or, or prolonged drought, you know, which may be no less worse in the long run, as it were, if that turns into a famine situation, actually, as can happen. Um, so, so it's us. It's all of us. It's personal responsibility. We, we all do that. You go into any building, uh, you'll see fire escapes. Uh, you'll see those things. You know, we take personal care. We're all vulnerable. Heaven forbid something happens to any one of us today. We're all vulnerable. And so it's about taking personal responsibility, as, as happens in all our lives in, in other ways, how we cross the road and how we put seatbelts on. And that extends to disasters. So all the evidence points to, um, well, excuse the technical term, but social capital. It's about friendships and relationships and networks and community uh, links that actually are the key thing that prevent disasters being worse and aid quick recovery. And when the aid sector is slow, it's when it actually doesn't take account of that social capital. Uh, the people themselves after disasters are not the helpless victims, they're the survivors, who actually the role of, of the aid industry and governments and others is to, is to support in helping them recover effectively that they own it. And maybe on another day, a conversation about that. Um, the, the aid world can be very slow at that. And I mean, it's difficult to define community in this context, because as we mentioned earlier, natural disasters or disasters tend to be quite widespread. It can wreak havoc across various countries and across many borders. So do we see good cooperation in Asia Pacific? Yes, is the answer to that. It's essential. It's everything. Uh, so the framework I mentioned a minute ago, Framework for Resilient Development in the Pacific, uh, it's all about Pacific Island nations coming together and working together. And the Pacific Islands are extraordinary at that. I mean, of course, there's a long history of people moving and collaborations and the rest of the world has a lot to learn from the nature of how Pacific Islands do that, especially in the face of so many hazard risks. So, yes, it's it's always about links and partnerships and connections. And the SDGs, a lot of those are about, well, it's number 17, in fact, about partnerships. It's about how we link and do stuff together. We're in a globalized world um, when we have to act together. That's the climate change discussion and the urgent call for action and everything else after that. So where does technology fit into all of this? It's been used to solve a lot of the world's great problems. There's some amazing technology to solve world hunger issues, for example. Is there any great innovations that you've seen in this area? No, I, I get it. And uh, I think I get what's behind that. And uh, I, I was doing a bit of th thought on that. I'm actually part of an innovation fund in the UK and we do get wacky crazy. <laughs> and, and, you know, the summary is it's the dull stuff. You know, I mean, I could tell you about things that pop up and they inflate and you know, what, but it's a total sideshow. Elon Musk the end, kind of things. Oh, yeah, well, well, he ridiculous. actually matches it with, you know, like these batteries or whatever it is in Southern Australia. So that, that that's interesting. But we get endless crazy schemes and crackpot inflatable things. But the reality is, is it better than a tent? And you mentioned food. In the 1970s, we thought we'd all fall off a cliff. But advances in food technology and actually growing, not, not actually GM, but actually how we do it has stopped that and prevented that from happening. And we are, many people say, on the edge of a revolution like we've never seen technologically through AI, artificial intelligence, and the changes that are coming in place. Um, and then some remarkable things, such as in, in Japan, you mentioned, in fact, at the beginning, declining, Japan is extraordinary on so many levels. Another is a declining population uh, where the rest of the world is, is, is going up. And so uh, the Japanese government is investing a lot of money into the use of drones and robots to, in fact, um, provide support to aging populations, in fact, in rural areas. 
So we, we see remarkable things happening and, and drones after disaster have really, excuse the pun, taken off. <laughs> see what I did there in the last few years. So, so there is a lot of shift. That said, uh, and also the use of wind and solar power, power actually has now come of age. It's now affordable. And recent research around you can really supply a lot of power to countries in a way you couldn't 10 years ago through affordable means. So that was now thought, that, that was thought, not the answer, and now increasingly is. And it's up to countries to invest in that. But 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 it's, there's a sort of watch out here that, that technology is also often not the answer when it comes to the age-old problems of poverty and disasters, as such around education, especially with girls. You educate girls, you make the difference. Uh, that's where a lot of the evidence is. Educate girls, change the world. Helping people, removing discrimination. Uh, corruption, that, that tie of corruption and disasters, which is present in all countries, according to Transparency International. And there are great initiatives. In India, for example, there's a, uh, a website, an app called ipaidabribe.com. And actually, you, you can report um, a bribe, someone who wanted to pay a bribe. I met an honest officer, so you, you celebrate uh, examples of good practice. But the use of technology right now for greater transparency and corruption is really interesting. We reduce the corruption, we make changes. Because you know what? Corruption causes the disasters that kills people. You know, it really is that stark. And so corruption, education, things like that, fairness, equity, better governance. So there is technology, absolutely right. And it's the amazing time to be alive for all the things that are about to happen and have happened. And also it's the age old issues that we need to, to really get right. So for example, with renewables and alternative energy sources, is that going to help with disasters that maybe black out entire cities or entire areas? Can they offer some kind of more reliable energy source? Absolutely, it's going to help. I was reading something the other day about the use of energy, the amount of energy used in bitcoins. It's incredible. <laughs> Just bitcoins themselves use up vast amounts of electricity. Uh, just uh, the correlation. So all the other things that haven't happened yet and will, uh, and then population increase and urbanization, we're going to need an awful lot more power. And of course, digging coal out of the ground is a very, very bad thing. And don't dig stuff out of the ground is actually what we now know when we're tied to climate change. And so the no-brainer is solar and the rest. And in fact, China is extraordinary in uh, investing in lithium-ion. China is doing an awful lot of initiatives relating to actually leading from the front uh, when it comes to... Um, um, increasing energy efficiency and reducing its carbon outputs and something which uh, I'm afraid we in Australia lag far behind on. And one last question, how does all of this translate into good policy? It's uh, having the policies, but it's doing them. We have the Paris Declaration, which is modest, but it's getting on with it, doing it. It is leading from the front. It's actually a political thing now to actually say, we will do that. There's been some action, but all indicators are it's not enough. And uh, we risk it really being an existential threat. Dame Meg Taylor yesterday said was saying this just after the keynote uh, at the conference. Uh, this really risks all of us. I think that you've made some, some wonderful points. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I would love to talk to you more about some of the design for social agency that you're working on. Uh, I think that what I've gotten out of this is that it's important to have strong communities because otherwise responses will all fail no matter how good they are. Thank you so much for coming in today. It was great to have you. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Don't forget that we have our normal podcast on Friday, Policy Forum Pod. And if you have any comments or feedback on this podcast or any of our other content, we would love to hear from you. We're on Twitter 
Apps Policy Forum, Facebook, the Asia-Pacific Policy Society, or shoot us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with another podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.